Buongiorno, diners and travelers. You're listening to On the Menu with Ann and Peter Haig. And Ann's going all Italian. <laughs> and Peter's going all Italian. Yeah, and, and, and the whole world loves it. And, and, you're, and you're going all Italian for this week at the very least, if not for quite a number of other weeks we've done it for as well. But but here we've got some really, really interesting characters. And the first first one traces his family history back. Only ten, ten centuries or so? Yeah. <laughs> Matteo Frescobaldi. Um, we actually had lunch with his cousin once. We did. Twi- twice, I think, twice. actually. Twice. Okay. But anyhow... Um, so, so it's also nice, it, it, nice to have lunch in a castle. Yeah. <laughs> Fairy tale castle. But Matteo's involved in, a, in another aspect of the business, which is the... The olive oil. The cultivation and the preparation of... What many people, I think, including the Frescobaldi's, would claim is probably absolutely the world's best olive oil. Laudemio Frescobaldi and Yams Yams. Here's the story of I am very excited just to talk to you, Matteo Frescobaldi. Um, your olive oil is absolutely splendid. Um, Thank you, Anna. Thank you very much. Uh, and you know we we know where it's made because we've actually been there at your estate, and we had in lunch Castello with your cousin in Castello Nipozzano. Yes, it, it, lo- it looks like a fairy tale castle. Uh huh. And yeah, and Thank you. you know, I, most people know about the uh, the family, the Frescobaldi family. Uh, could you just give us a, a brief description of, like, it goes back for how many years? You're, like, 30th generation? Yes. So the origins of our family date back to the year 1000 in in Florence, in Tuscany. And at the time of the medieval ages, we were... Like most uh, ancient Florentine families, bankers. And then uh, during the Renaissance, we also uh, took part in the Renaissance by financing uh, the construction of the Santo Spirito Church, Uh other important uh, constructions like the Santa Trinita Bridge. And then uh, in the year 1300, we... Uh, diversified, uh, what we could call today, diversified our business into agriculture as well. So we moved outside of Florence and we became uh, farmers, producers of agricultural products. So for over 700 years, our family has been producing wine and also olive oil. So... Today, yes, I am a part of the 30th generation of the Frescobaldi family. And do you actually live in the castle? <laughs> <laughs> no, I live in uh, Palazzo Frescobaldi. Uh, so our family uh, palace in the center of Florence. Okay, so you're in, you, yeah. so, so you live in Florence, okay. Yeah. And Matteo, I... Went to school at the Università di Firenze. Ah, okay. <laughs> she, she's not. She's not you telling. You, she's not telling you which century that was. No, in. 
He's being rude, Matteo, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> but, but, but seriously, Matteo, what is it that makes this very particular olive oil so particular? Is it the f- fruit or is it the processing? What is it that you think is outstanding about it? Yes. Uh, first of all, it is always and always the what we call in the winemaking industry the terroir. Okay. So, uh, as as I mentioned, we also make wine, and uh, we, you know, in the wine industry, terroir means uh, uh, land and microclimate, most of all. So we. Uh, we apply the same philosophy of the wine industry, of the wine uh, sector, to olive oil as well. So we think that the specific area where the Laudemio Frescobaldi is made is what gives its uniqueness. And uh, why is the terroir of the Laudemio Frescobaldi so special? Because it is in uh, an area of... Uh, that the climate is uh, particularly cold for olive trees. Uh, olive trees generally from the, the Middle East, actually, they are used to live in very mi- uh, mild and warm weather, like, uh, as I said, the Middle East, south of Italy, south of Spain, and North Africa. But... Uh, in, uh, in the north of Tuscany, near Florence, where our olive groves are, the cold climate uh, in uh, September and October gives uh, the olives unique characteristic. And that is why our olive oil is uh, so particularly green uh, and tasty and rich in aromas. It's so first of all, first of all, terroir. But the the um, your process is very particular as well, right? Of course, because once uh, you have the best terroir, you get the best fruit. But then you need to work in the best way to convey that fruit into the best finished product, and that is uh, our olive oil. So, what do we do to convey that? First of all. The key thing is to know when to harvest. So in October, usually, or November at maximum, the olives have just begun to ripen. And that is when you need to harvest them. I see. You do that later than most? I'm not clear. Are you harvesting later than most of olive producers, olive oil producers? Later? No, actually before. Before, okay. So you have to harvest just uh, as the ripening phase begins. Because uh, afterwards, when the olives finish to ripen, uh, a lot of the water that that was inside the olive turns into oil. So you have more oil, but more diluted, less rich in... uh, aromatic substances. So it is very, very important to harvest early in October or uh, November, depending on the year. No. And, uh, and that gives uh, 
a very, very small quantity, only 10 or 12 percent of the olive becomes olive oil, but that 10 or 12 percent is very, very rich in, uh, uh, first of all, nutrients, because it's also very good for you, and then in uh, aromas and taste. Yeah. So the, the, the first thing we said is terroir, territory, and the second is knowing when to harvest. Then the third and most important thing is to mill, so to press, in a very, very short time. Because if the olives wait a long time, so every minute that passes, the olives start to die and to rot. And so does the olive oil inside. Ooh, that's nasty, huh? <laughs> yes, I mean it's not it's not particularly bad, but it's not it does not taste good. Uh-huh. So, uh, especially now that uh, the the weather is uh, often warm during the day, still in October, uh, it is very very important to run in the shortest time possible to the olive press and to press the olive the, the olives and turn them into olive oil as fast as possible. Now, now, don't don't you add some some kind of saline substance to the olives to help them to cure? Am I am I, am I right or wrong there? Do they do that? The I didn't understand. Uh, do you, what do you add to the uh, olives so that they cure properly? No, nothing. No, oh, nothing. Okay, all right. So it's pure. Yes, pure, absolutely. Uh, you should not add anything. Uh, what, what you add is during uh, the year, you try to um, to work in the olive uh, field, in the olive groves, uh, to give nutrients uh, to the land, uh, to the soil. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, you don't uh, give uh, you don't give anything to the olives. It has to be. Just, uh, let's say, the juice, of the natural juice of the olives. Yeah. We, we, uh, so, mm-hmm. we, we interviewed an olive oil maker in the south of Spain that um, they didn't press them with a mill. Or they actually just uh, set them on the ground and put some rocks on them and let them leach out the oil. Yeah, what did they call? What did they call that? I can't remember. They had a, they had a special, spe- oh, lacrima. Lacrima. They called it the lacrima method. Okay, as, uh, as, I didn't know about that. As as in the tears, I guess. Yeah, tears is lacrima. Um, okay. So, but what do you use to press your olive? Is it is it cold pressed? Of course. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, um, so then the press ultimately. The press is very, very important because it needs to be mechanical, it needs to be clean, and very, very efficient because, as I said, it's, it's a struggle against time. So you need to bring the olives to the press, and then the press must press the olives and extract the olive oil uh, with, less, with less oxygen in the process as possible and uh, in the fastest way. 
So the press is a mechanical press, which at the end has a decanter that spins, and because the olives, uh, uh, the olive oil uh, weights have two different masses, the decanter by spinning separates the water from the oil. So in the end, you 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 have your olive oil separated from water and from the solid base of the of the olive. Uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. Ultimately, ultimately, you need to filter it because some bits, some solid parts, will be remained inside the olive oil, and those would later. Uh, damage uh, the taste of the olive oil so after uh, it is separated you need to filter it and that is very very important now we've, you, we've you seen do lose a bit of quantity yeah, I was gonna say, yeah. and it's expensive but you need but you need to filter it to have the best quality in the end now, we, we've seen lots of olive trees, and some of them look very old. Do, do you have, what is the age of the trees on your estates? Um, in, uh, as I said before, our terroir, uh, so our area, is very extreme for olive trees because of the cold. And uh, we, uh, eventually, every once in a while, we do... Um, lose the trees because of winter frost okay. and uh, in particular in 1985 there has been one of the worst uh, uh, winters in terms of cold uh, uh, in Tuscany but also in Italy and uh, that winter killed 90% mm. of the olive trees in Tuscany mm. and, and all of ours so all of the trees that we have today most of them, let's say, there might be some uh, older left, but most of them are uh, reborn after 1985. Wow. So the oldest would be 1986. Jeez. Now, I mean, how how much do you produce? I mean, your, your process is expensive and time-consuming, so what volume are you able to uh, produce? We have... Uh, uh, in 300 uh, hectares of olive groves. Um, that means that, and, and in terms of olive trees, uh, they are uh, over 150,000 olive trees. Mm. So it's a good part. Uh, but uh, at the end of each uh, production, we our experts eat olive oil. And only the best part of the production is selected to become Laudemio Frescobaldi. So um, we only have a small part of the production that will become Laudemio Frescobaldi because we want that that we want it to be the real best that we can produce. And despite all of the efforts you're always going to have a part of the production that is not as perfect as you like, and that part will not be selected. 
Now, tell tell us about availability. We we found out about you from people who sell your wine, yeah, we, Col- yeah. Colangelo and partners. But how how available is it? How 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 is it possible for people, for example, from the United States or other countries in the world, for that matter, to enjoy this elixir? Sorry. How how make it how, how can how can they how can they get some of this wonderful stuff? <laughs> okay, well, actually, the U.S. is one of the main our uh, major markets. Um, the, um, it is the best uh, where Laudemia Frescobaldi is most distributed is Italy, Japan, and USA. Okay, and uh, in the U.S., you do find that. Uh, in many retail stores, uh, in many, in the very good grocery stores, uh, and for example, Dina and De Luca, some of the Whole Foods uh, uh, stores. Oh, yeah? Not, not all of them. Uh, some, uh, some small uh, grocery stores. Uh, for example, I can think of uh, Eli's Market, uh, Eli's Bazaar in New York, uh, um, what others depending on where you are uh, in the country. Now, how and would you the, describe the the flavor profile of of your olive oil? The, we're talking only extra virgin olive oil, yes, right? Of course, it's extra virgin. Yes, yes, absolutely. And um, so, but what is the, yes the flavor? Yes. Well, in terms of aromas, the aromas first of all of fresh. Green flavors like uh, aromas of artichoke or of uh, um, how do you say uh, just cut mown grass, just mown grass, and uh, these are the particular aromas of our laudemio because it has to be very grassy. You know, have to feel you have to feel the earth and the fruit. And then in terms of taste, it, it is indeed a bit bitter and spicy, but it has to be balanced. So it has to be pleasant. You do need to have that spicy spiciness that characterizes the extra virgin olive oils of Tuscany. Um, now, uh, I wanted to ask a question. Um, it, there's been a lot of bad news about um, Italian... Uh, extra virgin olive oil that on the world news. Um, uh, how how are you handling that problem? I mean, what people are saying that they're um, diluting it. It's not really extra virgin. I mean, not your product, but the market is flooded with others, right? Yes. So what? Yes, that is a uh, that is a big issue. Uh, that we are very, very happy that consumers now are concerned about it because it has always been there, a lot of, we can say, counterfeiting uh, in order to keep, uh, uh, you know, low, low market prices, let's say, low. Uh, but what we always say is, first of all, we produce only from our olive trees, whereas many uh, olive oil brands, they are not producers, they are not farmers. They bottle, so they buy bulk extra virgin olive oil or 
olive oil and bottle it and brand it. Instead, we are farmers, and uh, if you buy Laudemio Frescobaldi, you are certain that the extra virgin olive oil inside the bottle comes from our olive trees. Well, it's, it's an amazing story. Going back 700 years, I'm, I'm guessing, listeners, if you're into the olive oil quality business, you better find some of this Laudemio, and, and you'll have a real treat. Yes, it's, yes. It's, it's worth all the effort to get a product this fresh and pure. Um, again, we're talking to Matteo Frescobaldi, and it's um, Lodemio Frescobaldi Extra Virgin Olive Oil. And uh, I, I'm sure you're going to be winning many awards with this olive oil, Matteo. <laughs> And, it, and it's very fine. You should be very proud of this product. Thank you so much. We are. It's a real uh, passion for, for for our family. And please, please give our best regards to, to Tania. Yes, yeah, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll stop by for lunch another day. Yeah. <laughs> ah, perfect. I would be happy. Happy for lunch. Yes. At Nipozzano. Yes. Beautiful, beautiful place. Matteo, it's a pleasure talking to you, meeting you, and enjoying your fine product. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, really. And I look forward to seeing you soon in Tuscany. Ah, we're due. We're due. <laughs> yes, we think the background noise indicates that Matteo is out in the olive groves. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're sorry about that. But, well, maybe it was Italia Telecom. Any, anyway, you, you get the scoop, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful family story, and a wonderful place to visit if you if they have the opportunity to go to the castle and all of those kinds of exciting things that are part of a Tuscan adventure. And we'll be back with more Italian adventure right after the break. So don't go away. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Next up is Elizabeth Minkeely, uh, who knows just about anything you want to know about eating in Italy. In fact, she even has a, uh, um, a an app for, for Eat Italy. She has um, blogs. She does tours. Uh, she uh, writes books. I think this is her eighth one. Uh, she's been studying Italian food from Rome for 25 years. Let's hear yes, from and she, Elizabeth. And she, lives, and she lives there, right? And she lives in Rome. How about how about how, about, how tough is that? Well, it's, it's, it's tough if, if you need to find a place to park. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but as long as you as long as you walk everywhere, you're okay in Rome, and uh, it's, it's obviously a great place to visit. We've been there any number of times, but not as much as Elizabeth. So here she is. Elizabeth Minkeely, you have always found a new angle to 
to present really the great Italian spirit as well as Italian food or food from Italy. Um, this current book, um, I said I read it and I wanted to hop on the next plane for Italy. It's just so gorgeous. The Italian Table, Creating Festive Meals for Family and Friends. Now you said, did you say you did the photography too? I did. I did the. I wrote it, and, and I also photographed the book. Photographs are wonderful. Uh, Thank you. Yeah, and but the, the recipes are splendid. And also, how how did you go about selecting the appropriate setting and event for each of these? Explain the how you set this up. Well, I had I had the idea for the book, and what I really wanted to do was convey different ways that people eat in Italy. And so I had this grand idea, you know, of, of traveling up and down Italy. And, of course, I wanted to include many more meals than I actually did and there was room for in one book. And so when I had to narrow it down to 12, I sort of picked and cho- chose things that were representative of different places, different times of day. So, for instance, you have a lunch by the sea, but then you also have a dinner maybe outside in Umbria. You have another one on a terrace in Rome, maybe eating a slice of pizza. Um, and so I wanted just to, to convey the different ways that people eat. So I, I, I wanted to uh, include a lot of variety. Well, I mean, we've, we've experienced many of these situations, <laughs> and I'm really appreciative of being reminded about the kind of happiness I found in these situations. Um, you start with, I guess, uh, what people start with on any given day, eating cicchetti in Venice. Yes. <laughs> that's that's, that's fun. That seemed, that seemed really, um, people are always really curious about that, so that I, I absolutely wanted to include that in the book. Uh, the first day I was ever in Italy, I, I wanted to go out and buy, buy takeout coffee, which, was an, which is another story. But, but the, only, the only thing that people were eating in the, in the coffee bar was cigarettes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did not seem to require sustenance of any kind no 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 (laughs) but you know your recipes are also really very luscious and um, they're authentic but they're just brilliantly presented because you know what you're doing when you're cooking well I do like to cook and I mean I cook for my you know I write about food professionally but I also uh, like to have people over for for meals, whether it's lunch or dinner, I I cook for myself when I'm alone. I cook for my husband and I. I cook for my family. So so I do cook a lot on an everyday basis. So I really do know what it's like to you know get off work at seven and have to put you know dinner on the table. So I, there's always that sense as well. Right now, I mean among my favorites, as I said, we we actually experienced this: a table by the sea in Positano. <laughs> Oh, was that fun. <laughs> I know. And those, I have to say, those are the, some of the funnest pictures to take uh, in the book. And I, my daughter and I spent, you know, four days staying in the one hotel that's actually on the beach in Positano and just, you know, hanging out at the four restaurants on that beach and, and photographing the food and talking to the people and getting the recipes. And, and you know, we'd have to go swimming. And <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, sort of just to give listeners an idea of how complete and arresting the details are, you have this gorgeous photograph of of the table set up uh, just next to a beach, 
and you you described like tablescapes and um, you know things to set the mood. Run us through this party in Positano. Well, what I really think that is often left out of of a lot of cookbooks. Um, they're really good at giving recipes. But the thing, when you when you go to make the meal at home, you might have a great recipe for one dish, but what goes around that dish? You know, how if you want to have something else with it, people are always asking, oh, what should I serve with that? Also, what do you drink with that? Yes. And I took it even further is into, you know, how do you set the, how would the Italians in this picture be setting the table? And it's never random. You know, every time you sit down in Italy, you have a sense of occasion, and there's history that goes on, too, whether it's, you know, the fork you have, the plates you have, the type of glasses, what you're drinking. And so what I wanted to do was provide information um, about that as well. Well, you did. <laughs> and then you get these wonderful, luscious recipes. Um, what about things that you can make that you maybe thought you couldn't make until you explained them here. I mean, like, just the mozzarella al limone. Well, that's, for instance, all the recipes in the in the Positano chapter, most of them are made at these pop-up restaurants that are only there in the summer, and they're really, you know, wooden shacks on a beach. Right. And so the things that they serve are delicious, but actually really simple to make. And one of the things that, that, you, that you just mentioned is the mozzarella in lemon leaves, and it's and it's just mozzarella between two lemon leaves and melted. And it's if it sounds simple, it is. But but the hard you get part is getting thing. the lemon leaves. Actually, the hard part <laughs> is getting the lemon leaves. But I do I do provide an alternative for that uh, using actual lemons yes. and using the skin right. to give the flavor to the to the mozzarella. But it's you know it's melted cheese, and and I, there's another recipe in that same chapter which is you know melted cheese with prosciutto, and then you put that on top of a fresh arugula salad and. And that's lunch or, or whatever you want to call it. And, and it's simple, simple, simple. And, you know, they're doing it with one little burner in a wooden shack. So certainly you can do it at home in your own kitchen. Yeah, no, um, this this is so on the mark, this how Italians value terraces. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a dinner on a Roman terrace was particularly interesting to me. Well, I think, I think that's interesting to everyone. <laughs> Uh-huh. Right. It's right. everybody's dream, I think. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you, remember, you remember the guy who wanted, we were going out to dinner with him? The but he wanted us to, he wanted us to see his pad in Rome. Yeah, he, he which, lives which within rather, the walls. Which, which was rather splendid. Yeah. But, but you could, he could, he could look down on the Vatican. I yeah, he looked, was, I in this kitchen, you look out the window, there's the, uh, the dome of the Vatican. Uh, the well, that's, that's always nice. And in fact, you can see the dome of the Vatican from the terrace, uh, that's included in the, in the chapter in my book too. And we actually, I see as it. we shot this, as we shot this dinner, you know, the sun was going down. And so I got the different light as, you know, from the beginning of Bounty Pasti to finally the end. I was shooting the dessert in, in, in the dark. And, you know, you could see the, the rays of light streaming through the windows of the dome of, the, of, of St. Peter's, which was just sort of incredible. Yeah. Now, this, this, he's a vintner, I think, isn't he? He owns vineyards, anyhow. Well, the funny part about it, he, he owns vineyards, but he, make, he makes money on recycled. Uh, inkjet cartridges. Yeah, right. <laughs> Computer, uh, printer cartridges. But uh, his family home in Rome is now what embassy? The Swedish embassy. The Swedish embassy. You know that? Yeah, yeah I know. 
it's right it's right down near the Colosseum, near the oh, yeah. near, near the Roman Forum. On this on the street corner, he said, "My family home used to be right there on the street corner." <laughs> and I think I think his grandfather gambled away all the money. Yeah, that was what happened. His grandfather gambled away all his. That happens sometimes, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't have that opportunity. So now I've been telling you about my favorite ones. Which are, which of these sections is your favorite? Excuse me. Which of, of these sections in the book, uh, which scenario is your favorite? Huh. Well, you know, I love, I love, I can't really say one is specific of my favorite, but I really loved uh, spending time in Puglia. I, I spent a lot of time in Puglia, and the chapter that we shot down at Masseria Potenti. Yes, that was um, interesting. It's definitely one of my favorites, and what I loved about that was, um, even though I know the region very well, I was still able to learn completely new recipes. And it was the height of summer, and so it was all basically different versions of using the same, you know, summer produce, but but combined and presented in such different ways that you had this, it looked like this wonderful sort of enormous meal, but then you realize it isn't, you know, that heavy, and it's it's very easy to do, and... Um, and also, it was just so gorgeous down there. It was. I think that might be one of my my favorite chapters. Yeah, well, it's becoming popular. I don't know. When were the we there? Robert? We were there in 1999. 1999. Before so this is a long was, time ago. Before it was popular at all, and it, it was it was yeah, really it's changed it really a lot. Dramatic. I mean, there's a lot of new of new places to go in Puglia, but then of course, you know, the, the traditions and the and the and the, the things you eat stay the same. We still, well, do we you still, think it's we, not spoiled? I mean, I was worried that if we go back, that I'll find it spoiled from what we found. No, I think I think, in, especially in terms, of, Puglia is much easier to go to now. It's it's because there's a lot of really nice hotels and and it hasn't been you know that uh, built up at all. And there's still big stretches where you just don't see anybody. And the, the thing, it's a really wonderful place. The thing I remember I, I remember most about Puglia is we stayed in the. Little town of Barletta. Mm-hmm. At that time, I for some, for some reason we used the travel agent, and that's where she put us. But I can remember driving north along the road to the Gargano Peninsula, yep. and, and there were all these old gentlemen tending tending to their garlic crops. Oh, yeah. You loved that. That's and, 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 and you could smell it inside the rental car. You could smell the garlic in mm-hmm. the rental car. Well, we're going down to Puglia in uh, next week. We're leading a tour, a gastronomic tour down in Puglia next week. So you, we're you really do looking that, forward to that. By the way, I mean, you should, we should make sure that people know that you do do these tours. We do. We do week long tours in Italy. I, I work. When I say we, I mean my sister, my uh, daughter, and I. And we um, we do week long tours in Rome, in Umbria, and in Puglia. Right, and that's on your website. It's on my website, and they're all food focused, obviously, and and we have we have a really great time ourselves doing them. Yeah, see, I, I, people have always wanted me to do those tours, and I, I once did an art tour in New York, and it, it was such a bad experience hurting all these people. <laughs> and they oh, our tours late. are really small, so it's like a, it's like a private party. <laughs> no, we we were. We, you remember that time we were in Otranto? And uh, the uh, we 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 ordered a speedo chicken. Yeah. But, but we for, we forgot we needed to be back at the shop. 
before they close. Oh, right. <laughs> so, so all of a sudden we're realizing that somebody's going to give give our chicken away or something like that's going to happen. It turned out that the the owner of the of the shop he was putting down his barricade. You know the the screen, yeah, the gate, gate, and then and then hanging the chicken in a plastic bag. Yeah, on the doorknob. On the doorknob. <laughs> That's how we got our, We call them speedo chickens because they're fast. Yeah. <laughs> no, we call them speedo chickens because I pronounce speedo. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, people are now having a, sort of a revival of interest in southern Italy, particularly. Yes, there is. Yeah, and of course that's... Well, I, think, I think that has to do also with the fact that it's um, it's sort of been unknown, and, and uh, I mean, people have been going there, but people have been writing about it, but it's only recently the people... It's, it's become more accessible, and I think that's... Because people are traveling there more, it's easier to get there on low-cost airlines, and there are these hotels, and, and um, I think the more people go, the more curious they are. And there's just, it's so different from the rest of Italy. You know, we're talking about Sicily and Basilicata and, and Puglia and Calabria. And it's it's really, really different cuisines in each region, and, and they're all very, very interesting and delicious. I think so, yeah. And, um, like, what what unspoiled place are you going to explore after Puglia is discovered? Well, we're hoping to do a tour in Sicily. We'd love to do that. Oh, I love And, you know, Sicily is, you know, there's people are intensely curious about Sicily and at the same time a little scared to go on their own. I, I think. know. Um, the, I, know. So I don't know why, but they are, and there's no reason to be. But but we're, we're certainly uh, willing to go, you know, take you along with us and... Um, and explore. And, and, and there's just, you know, you can drive in Sicily for hours and not see another car, which is amazing. And, and then you get to these villages, they're like, you know, little living museums. Right. Yeah, well, and this a- is... And I'll go with you, just send her a ticket. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, the first time I went, I stayed a month and did, you know, the circuit on the outside. And then ever since then, we've picked up little bits of it and stayed concentrated because there's so much off the beaten path in Sicily. So, there's so much. But there's off the beaten path in almost every region you go to. I mean, even even in, there's places in Tuscany, you know, everybody goes to the same, you know, six places in Tuscany. But, but there's so so much to see where people don't really go. And, and, and that's true in the big cities as well. And I think that people just have to be, you know, curious. And that's also, you know, true in the cookbook. I was trying to, to, to explore meals that people wouldn't have experienced before. It's not the same old, you know, Italian menu. Yeah, no, we've had some really interesting experiences, like old castles and estates and that yeah. kind of thing. Um, where, who, where were we? Um, well, we had we had a very interesting dinner at, um, at in uh, Friuli uh, mm-hmm. with the um, Nonino family. Uh, I just saw them last week. Oh uh, yeah, well, they they paired this whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, I was, was Antonella shoes at a. Uh, in Florence, and we had, I, I love them, I've known them for ages. Yes, yeah, so we, and, but they paired this luncheon, the entire, every course was paired with a grappa. <laughs> yeah, yeah, everything is paired with grappa. <laughs> I do that now myself. Do you really? And, um, I'm, a, I'm a big grappa fan, yes. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Uh, yeah, there's, there's a new distillery local here to us that's going to start making guapa, but they're way behind in technique and understanding of, like, the Noninos. They've done wonderful mm. things. They just sent us a bottle of Amaro. Yeah, their Amaro is fantastic. Yes. Yeah, so did you have that yet? I haven't that was, a, that was a Christmas. We drank it all already. We, it's we, all yeah, yeah, we got to have it. I don't think I had any of it. Of course you do. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Well, anyhow, so what's next on the agenda, Elizabeth? I mean, what well, I'm on my way to the states now, and I'll be there from mid-April to mid-May, and I have a ten-city tour uh, to promote the Italian table, right. and I'm really looking forward to it because there are a lot of really fun events: some dinners, some book signings, some you know uh, conversations. I'll be at the 92nd Street Y in New York in mid-May. So I'm really excited about that. And then... Um, I guess I won't see you when you're in the States, but um, uh, hopefully y- you'll do a very successful book tour. And thank you. you. You have, I think, a wonderful concept for this book. It creates an atmosphere that is so inviting. Uh, to, oh, thank you. Yeah, to, to actually recreate these, even in your home. I think it's possible, but... Oh, I think it's absolutely possible. And the other thing I wanted to add about, you know, each of these meals, they were photographed as they were happening. This wasn't, they weren't set up just to be photographed. These were meals I was actually attending. And all the food that you see that's in in the book, we actually ate. You know, we were sitting down at the beach and actually ate the things we photographed and, and, and at all the other settings, too. These were meals we sat down to eat. Talk about La Dolce Vita, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Elizabeth, thank you for for talking to us. Is there anything else we should know? Are you going to give us your your, uh, website so the people who want to go on on a tour with you can find it? Yeah, that would be great. And, you know, come on my tour and buy the book, obviously. But And I have an app that's called Eat Italy. And oh, it yes, has I all my favorite, about that. That's a great and one. And it has all my favorite restaurants in it, and that's available on iTunes and on Android. And then, you know, my two previous books, which I think we've talked about in the past, there's Eating My Way to Italy and Eating Rome. Yeah. And those explore, you know, in more depth some other regions. Right. I also, I like your, your sort of side notes on... Um, on the whole subject of pizza, because everybody's so screwed around with pizza these days. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, and there's much to love about this book, listeners. And um, I'm, you know, I'd, I would like to be there with you right now, Elizabeth Minchu. Well, I wish you were here too. I'll, I'll have a, I'll have a spritz tonight in your honor. Thank you, Elizabeth <laughs> Minchili, the Italian table. Thank you. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Okay, so you're in love with truffles and you want organic truffles in various different shapes, form factors, you, you, you got it with Rosario, Safina. Safina, what's the name of his company? Da Rosario uh, Organics, and it is, it's certified organic. And, and he, and he's, he's, he's going to tell you that. 
several times. Well, yeah. <laughs> so, so well, the tagline he has for his company is "Real truffles, real taste." And I, I think of that every morning when I put the truffle salt on my soft-boiled eggs. You know, I, I love g- getting caught up with old friends uh, and good products. And Rosario Safina, how many years is it now that we've known each other? <laughs> Twenty-five. Oh, I don't know, oh but anyhow, um, but you're still creating new things, and one of the reasons we wanted to catch up with you is because there were a lot of things that I hadn't um, tried of your new product lineup, and uh, I did write to you after sampling uh, some things that I I'll forget that how much better your product is. And and that's what because it's all natural or what? Well, no. The reason why our product tastes the way it does, and a lot of people say the same thing, it really tastes superior to what's out there, is because we're the only ones that make it from real truffles, and we're certified 100% organic. Uh-huh. That's so, the basic reason. Everybody else is like we when we were in um, where was it uh, Tasmania at one point. This guy was training truffle sniffing dogs with a uh, a chemical on tennis balls and and that hmm? that's got to be the biggest mistake ever well i mean the, the actually, chemicals it actually seemed like it worked pretty well but it, 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 the chemicals the taste was horrible i know as long as the dog didn't well i was saying it's well, the worst worst way to train the dog is as long as the dog didn't like lick it or eat it uh-huh. no no they were they were trained to bring bring the right Bring, bring the tennis ball back, and then they got a treat. And then they got the treat. And then, and then no, the, but did the dog bring back truffles? Right. Uh, yeah, they, they did. After they were after they were well trained, they did. They would. Okay. They would dig them out of the of the near the roots of the trees. Right. Okay. All right. So I mean, but that's the basic reason why Oz is tastes like real truffles because it's made from real truffles. Ninety nine percent of all that stuff out there is just. Artificially flavored. Well, now, you know, there was, going on. there was like about, um, oh, 15 years ago, there was an effort to expand the truffle-producing regions of the world. And, and that's when Australia got into it. And, um, and, and Yeah, Australia, uh, Argentina, Oregon. Chile. And, I mean, has any of them turned out to be promising in any regard? Oh, the Australian truffles on from the West Coast? Yeah, yeah, area. yeah, yeah. Done, they've done great. Uh, right? They're a major producer. They probably they do two tons a season. Yeah, we we love that because it's also the opposite season, which is really good. The opposite season. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in the Chile mid- probably produces now about a thousand kilos a year. Oh well, wow, okay. Started right. two years ago for a lot less money, or what? What was that? Sorry, did they cost a lot less than the uh, French and Italian no. and? No, uh, no, I don't understand how they market the product because there's such low demand in the off season for fresh black winter truffles. I mean, it's the summertime. Um, I but they still want you know seven eight hundred dollars a kilo. I don't know who's buying them. We buy very little of it. There's very little demand for it. So where do you usually buy your truffles? Fresh truffle business is a commodity business. Okay. No matter what anybody says, we all buy from the same. Uh-huh. We all pay a lot of money 
We all pay on the nose, as they say. And wherever they come from, they come from, as long as they're the same species. It really has gotten so commoditized. I'm surprised you can't do it now online. Yeah, you know. You can. It's, you can buy it. You can buy them from, uh, what's the name of that? We interviewed those people. They're Chicago-based, and I get the newsletter, but we could have No, but I'm saying, but it's... Rigatoni or something like that? Regalis? Oh, Regalis. Regalis. Yeah, no, I'm I'm talking about uh, buying them online as a commodity item. Okay. Um, You know, like like the Chicago Big Board for for commodities. Uh Yeah, like like that, you know. So you put a price in, and then someone will offer you 50 kilos, or someone will offer you 100 kilos. Uh-huh. Yeah, it hasn't gotten to that yet. So, so you're dealing with people in Alba and Aquilania and places like that. I deal with people from. Well, we deal with people from Italy, Bulgaria, oh, Bulgaria, uh, okay, Turkey, sure. Romania. Truffles, truffles are found good quality black truffles and good quality white truffles are found everywhere now. What? Why is Oregon so behind? I don't. I mean, the truffles. Because there it? are no. There's no good. Quality commercial truffles in Oregon. There aren't. They don't taste. They don't even taste like the truffles. No, the white the white truffle is tuber jubosum, which is found under pine trees and tastes like pine. Oh. Uh, the the black truffle that they call a black truffle is not a truffle, it's not <laughs> a tuber. It's a pacoa. Mm-hmm. It grows above the ground, and it tastes like sour apples. See, I don't understand. They keep going. They even have an organization, you know. Oh yeah, no, they're playing. They're playing, and they're playing in the real field. But no. uh, I mean, I've never. I was never a fan of them. I always said the the white those Oregon white truffles are best when they're uh, very immature, so they don't taste like much. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. When they when they, they, when they taste, taste like a lot when they're full season, they taste like pine salt. <laughs> uh-huh. oh, that's odd. Okay, so 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 you get. You get the black truffles, and from from all those countries that you mentioned, and there. Uh, yes, uh, the fresh truffle market we deal uh, when we deal the fresh truffle black market, it's from wherever they come from: Spain, Italy, France, uh, Romania, Bulgaria. Rosaria, how did you get into this? I mean, you've been doing this for so long, and now I'm trying to remember what how you got into this business. Uh, I would consider myself the forefather of the truffle business. In the United States, I started in 1983. Yes, and like when was Urbani started? Um, Paul Urbani started the business in New, uh, from his house in New Jersey in 19 in the 60s. Oh yeah, 60s, yeah, early 60s. Yeah, now they have that big place. They keep inviting us to tour that uh, the new facility or the up. This is the Upper East Side of New York. It seems to be like yep. a spot. Yep. Uh, yep. So, uh, and then, you know, we popularized uh, the fresh truffle business. Before well, we got into it, um, you know, fresh truffles came in like once a month. And it was just a tiny handful of restaurants. It, yeah, with well, the little well, sh- that, sharks yeah. get the shavers. And what, <laughs> what, what, are the, what are the key things that you're doing now? And well, the key thing that we're doing now is um, is that we we continue expanding and growing our 100% certified organic truffle line. Uh, we've been certified organic now for 10 years in a row. We're the only company in the world that does a complete line of certified organic truffle products. You're the only we're the company. Only truff- we're the only organic truffle company in the world. I'll be darned. But you're also doing something interesting with your packaging. 
Yep, and then uh, we started um, uh, last year, we purchased new equipment to do the single-serve packets. Um, this way, the consumer, for a very, very low cost, can get to try real truffles. Yes. You know, you can go into a store, you can go into a grab-and-go shop, uh, sandwiches, you can go to pizzerias. You could either order the packet at the retailer, or you could buy the box, the one, the sample set that I sent you there, or you could buy the box retail, and you could put real truffles on your favorite dish now for about a dollar fifty. I mean, I love single serving, but you get to try the real thing. Well, you know, I tried to do this. I tried to market. I had this idea. This is going back years and years of um, uh, tomato paste in those single serve things because no recipe, I did all the research, no recipe calls for more than two tablespoons max of tomato sauce. And I went to all the major producers of tomato paste. And no, I mean, I got these funny letters saying, uh, I opened your letter but didn't read it because my patent lawyer told me you had to lay out the whole thing as prior disclosure to stop them from pretending that right. they, yeah. So, anyhow. Well, you know why they won't do it? Because they, like they, they like waste. They like waste. They like that you buy that tin, use two teaspoons, put it back in the refrigerator, develops mold in two weeks, and then you throw it away. Exactly. <laughs> Well, that, it took me a while to realize that. See, but. that that won't that won't happen with your single serve pouches, right? No, nope. no, it wouldn't with nope. tomato paste either. Up. Even the You'll tubes of tomato paste, yeah. they said, you know, it has a limited shelf life. No, yeah, it's like so. six weeks. No. Like with our packet, you'll open up a packet of our organic truffle mayonnaise. You'll put it on your burger. You'll get to taste a delicious truffle burger, and that's the end of the packet. You're done. I love um, it. I love the whole well, thing. What, the best thing about it is quote-unquote, you know, the shelf life. Mm-hmm. A lot of times, people open up a bottle of truffle oil, they'll use a little bit of it, they put it back in the cabinet, and then they go back three months later, and then the oil's off, or the flavor's not there. This doesn't happen. Right. You so that's that one of your... I like yeah. your, your, uh, your use suggestions. Like, I like the one about the popcorn. Tell us about that. Definitely. So, you know, whether you're going... If you're going to the movie theater, order your popcorn, don't Put anything on it, maybe just a little salt. When you go sit down and watch the movie, tear that packet, drizzle it on top, and you have the best tasting truffle popcorn. Of course, it'll be distracting in the movie theater. A lot of people say, what is that? Where did you get that? <laughs> I get it at the front. Uh, but hopefully when, uh, we'll be out in several movie theaters shortly and a couple of movie theater chains uh, with the packaging. No, I, I, uh, I was thinking that pe- people who didn't have... The truffle packages would really, would really object because the the one thing ab- about truffles that's so marvelous is the, the is, the, is the smell. Yeah, the smell. that perfume. That's right. Yeah, you know um, when uh, Thomas Keller opened a per se of the Warner Time Warner Center, mm-hmm. that's what he served to all the people invited to the opening: uh, truffle popcorn. Yep. Oh no, we uh, you know we it always was, it always was a companies. cheap shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, it was, it was just using you know the, so, the no. old fashioned or artificial truffle oil. But uh, um, I, you know, I would just buy organic popping corn, pop it at home, and then put this on it. Um, yeah. I think this is probably one of the best ways to really, really enjoy um, truffle popcorn. 
Now, do you have then, trouble? Um, I like I make you know potato chips at home. It's very simple. You know, I either use uh, I either use um, um, potatoes or the other favorite thing I like to use is sunchokes. Oh yeah, well we have a whole garden full of those. Yep, slice them paper thin, fry them, take them out, drizzle a little bit of that truffle oil on. Uh, best way to go. The truffle oil packets then for the pizza. You do a pizza bianco or pizza quattro. Qua- oh, that's a good idea. Pizza with mushrooms works really, really good. And no. then two, when you get to bring it to the, these type of locations, at least you know what truffle oil you're putting on your food. Hmm. You know, a lot of times the restaurants are just they're very cost conscious, and you know they just pour that other stuff on, and you don't get to taste real truffles. Now, do you do you also do truffle salt? I mean that was that was one of our one of our first encounters. Truffle salt is just a synthetic chemical. It is okay. on salt. We okay. have some from it's called truffle hunters. I had uh, I got it's, black. It's ninety nine percent of all that stuff is artificial. Huh. It's a synthetic chemical suspended in ethanol and sprayed on salt. Yeah, how did? How did we get to that point? I mean, <laughs> just because of the price points, is that why? Yes. Uh, you know, the, the lower the price, the more pull the customer has to try truffles, what they think is truffles. Mm-hmm. You know, Trader Joe's sells a six-ounce or a five-ounce jar of truffle salt. Oh, yeah. For three ninety-nine. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, what yeah. could that be? What could you get for three ninety nine? I don't know. I have no idea. So, so people buy it. You get dirt, truffle on it. I guess you get dirty and, salt, right? You know what it is? Uh, truffle salt, in my opinion, the way it tastes to me, it's magic seasoning in salt. <laughs> that's all it is. Uh-huh. Now, what about truffle ketchup? Yeah, and that's the one that you just said. Is that so your truff- newest product? Okay, yeah. So, as you, yes, uh, you know, we have a food production facility here where we make our an organic food production facility where we do all of our own production. So we make the ketchup from scratch from all organic ingredients. We cook it. Then we add the organic truffle ingredients, the white truffle ingredients to it, and it's packaged. It's shelf-stable. It is, I think it's got the most umami flavor of truffles in any truffle product that's out there. Yeah, I mean, I'm it's, so it, impressed with the flavor on that product. You say in your marketing of it that it's now okay to put ketchup on your steak. Have you sent any of this to our president? <laughs> um, it'll it'll be going to him. Uh, now, of course, I say this with a caveat: if it's if it's dry aged, I wouldn't put ketchup on it. But if it's fresh meat, if it's a fresh steak, yes, I would put ketchup on it. Yeah, and it yes. Is. I think our president would probably like it. I got that line. Um, David Burke gave yeah. me that line because he loves the truffle ketchup. He says he was going to came up with, "Hey, now there's a reason to put ketchup on your steak." Is he really? I mean, he knows steak, that's for sure. Yeah, he knows. He knows steak, and it goes great on French fries. It's unbelievable in meatloaf. You got to try it in meatloaf. Okay, well, we would be good on meatballs too, then I guess. Right? Yeah, maybe yeah. we should do that when the kids are visiting. Why would yeah. I? Why would and I waste then, truffle ketchup on the kids? Because they would love truffles. Yeah, they would love that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, also, you know, the Japanese make what's called spaghetti napolitan. Oh, do they? Yes, 
um, you know, it's considered one of their comfort foods. Uh-huh. And they make, they don't use tomato sauce. They use ketchup. <laughs> yeah, I guess so the to, Japanese like ketchup for some reason. They love ketchup and they love mayonnaise. Yeah, now you mayonnaise. have a truffle mayonnaise too, don't you? Yes, and then we do an organic uh, white truffle and black truffle uh, mayonnaise. Um, it's got, a, you know, it's, when you, or, there's a big difference. People always say, well, is there a difference between organic mayonnaise and conventional mayonnaise? I always say 100%. Because when you make it with organic eggs and those dark, dark yolks, I mean, organic eggs, in my opinion, have a big difference in flavor. Oh, sure. All, all, you, have to, all you have to do is eat breakfast in Spain and you understand the difference. And you understand it. Yeah. And then, you, and then when, you know, use those yolks to make the, the mayonnaise and, you know, you use olive oil and use those type of ingredients, the mayonnaise is very rich, it's delicious, and it really, really holds the truffle flavor. The organic truffle flavor, whether it's the white or the black, holds really well um, in the mayonnaise. Now, what so I we, think, uh, so our condiment line is, is building in the, for the American palate between the mayonnaise and the ketchup. We had um, uh, truffled mustard, didn't we? We did. I, I didn't want to bring it up because I wasn't sure it was Rosario's. <laughs> no, it's truffle. No, we don't, truffle we don't make it. I, I find the acidity to be too... The acidity and the sharpness to be too... I mean, with the organic truffles, it doesn't come through because of the right, 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 and yeah. the sharpness of it. Got with it. the artificial product, you know, you just keep adding more of that artificial flavoring to it, and that'll kill, and that'll kill any mustard. No, it, it is. It is good though. The, the, the aroma is really good. Mm-hmm. So, so sure, you don't get you don't get a truffle flavor in the mustard, but you get a right. truffle flavor it in your nose. Boost. Yeah. Yep. Well, that's why yep. I put. That we had from I forget who it was from. We had truffle zest. I've never understood what truffle zest actually is, but first thing in the morning, the smell was really good on eggs because soft-boiled eggs need a lot okay, of help. Okay, so you have to read the ingredient on that product. Yeah, and it won't even yeah, say truffle, probably. No, just you should. Re- it's it's amusing. You read it. There's cacao in it. There's all these. <laughs> there's all these different things in it. Oh, funny. There's carob. Sorry, it's not cacao. There's carob powder. That's oh, the yeah. first ingredient. There you yeah. go. Well, we, we, we believe you, Rosario. We're, yeah, we're, your we're, stuff's so good. I've always loved it. And we're I'm delighted glad to see you, you very building. Much. We're delighted you joined us again. And uh, come, on, come on back when you got some more goodies to, for I us will to try. Do, and I, to give us I'll the, gladly reach out to you guys. And get, get the, uh, give us the websites that people know. Sure. The website is darosario.com. D-A-R-O-S-A-R-I-O.com. Right. All right. Thank you. Ciao, ciao. Great to hear from you guys again. You too. Ciao. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. If it sounds like everybody's having such a good time in Italy, that's that's, that's because they are. Yes. (laughs) So, so, So... when are we Never gonna been go there. Back? Go there if you've been there three, six times. Go seven, and uh, you'll probably run across us along the way. And in, until same time, same place next week, we'll say good night. Until then, but until next time, next week. Ciao, sure ciao. Join, yeah, be <laughs> sure to join us again, same time, same place, next week.